0: Creation Labs is helping bring Europe one step closer to fully autonomous long-haul trucking. They have developed an AI driver assistance system that retrofits any commercial vehicle, starting with Volkswagen crafters and other trucks. Their system uses camera hardware mounted to the vehicle to capture video data that's processed with computer vision to understand the context on the road. This piece of the system was developed by the world's leading experts in computer vision. While the computer interprets what is happening on the road, data is sent to a processing system that can control the vehicle's braking, throttling, and steering. The system currently augments a driver's role, but does not replace the need for the driver yet. However, the distance between great drivers and bad drivers is around a 30% difference in fuel efficiency according to Creation Labs. They've trained their systems with data from the best drivers in order to fuel lower costs for vehicles driven by their system. They've also built their system using the highest standards of safety. Jacob Langer is the CEO of Creation Labs, and he has a background in data science. He discusses in today's episode the future of Creation Labs and their impact on trucking and autonomous vehicles. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. You work on autonomous driving, specifically autonomous trucking. It's 2021. Give me a... Refresher, what's the state of the art in autonomous trucking today? Where are we? How far are we from actual deployments?
1: Yeah, so obviously, there's a number of players with different approaches, right? You can obviously see the sort of, you know, Waymos and the Embarks of the world like trying to basically run their first kind of trial engagements. They usually still have a safety driver. I mean, that's kind of the, the sort of standard operating practice. So it's it's sort of a little bit disappointing that timeline to, to I think, what most people believed. I think one of the specificities for us as a, as a startup based in London is that in Europe, it's it's arguably even much worse. You know, there is no real focus on autonomous trucking pretty much anywhere in Europe. With basically one or the very most two two exceptions, which is somewhat disappointing compared to I think the 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 visions that we've been told. Obviously, you know, on the technical side, there's still sort of the lidar versus no lidar debate. I think you know if you look at it from a sort of less already sort of entrenched view, I think that what the the correct answer shapes up to be effectively something along the lines of like lidar is a very useful tool. Uh, if I'm being a little bit dismissive, maybe a crutch of sorts, that's probably useful in the short term, but probably not necessary in the long long, long term. But there's this in, inherent conflict between the the types of conflict, the, the types of approaches that existing players have already adopted. Um, So we're kind of having a really strange debate, in my view, about uh, what type of sensor to use. So I think that's kind of like sort of 10,000 feet kind of overview of of autonomous trucking landscape happy to
0: dive into any of those
1: sort of major
0: pillars can you tell me about the ingest process for all the sensor data and how it gets integrated and turned into a decision
1: yeah so effectively you know there's there's obviously a whole whole like a large amount of sensor fusion going on depending on what setup you have going on our our approach has been to basically start with computer vision. I, myself, um, as well as my co-founder, Dr. James Hennessy, we both have you know fairly strong backgrounds in computer vision. So we kind of thought like we're going to leverage that to, to, to the largest extent possible. I think Tesla has demonstrated that just basically with just some combination of radar and vision, you can already have a pretty complicated pretty pretty sophisticated system able to navigate pretty complicated situations i think that people watching full self driving beta on uh, on the streets of san francisco can kind of see how far you can get without any complicated sensor fusion and with lidar and many other modalities so i think that's about as as, as much as i can say on on this on this topic to publicly
0: can you tell me Anything more about, like, maybe the data pipeline? Just maybe you can speak in general terms or, like, some of the software infrastructure that you use to process data.
1: Right. So I think one of the really important components is obviously, you know, having the full context for uh, any particular driving decision. So I think, you know, it, it is no accident that that sort of Elon Musk and Andre Kaparthy speak so much about the sort of the sixty. Data labeling pipeline, which in, in essence, really what they mean by that is a pipeline that effectively understands the the not just the video data sort of within for a particular object, but also is able to track that object across time, including its dimensions. So it's, it's sort of kind of not just understands the 2D version of the image, but also implicitly understands the 3D structure behind it, you know, and then and some deep level, that's probably how how humans also understand the world. You know, uh, we have sort of object permanence from very early age. And that's something that, you know, unless you sort of explicitly enforce in your architecture, is probably pretty hard to get as just as an emergent behavior.
0: How do you feel about the competitive landscape? Because like, there are companies that are Really well financed. They have really large teams working on a problem like autonomous trucking. How do you stay competitive?
1: Yeah, great question. So I think one of the core decisions, and I think this might be sort of unique to Europe, is really understanding the the regulation side of things, which is unfortunate is sort of the necessary function, and especially in a market where you know it tends to be more on the conservative side. You kind of really need to sort of slowly demonstrate to the regulator that your system is safe. You know, traditionally looking at automotive safety cases, the way that they have been done is basically, you know, an almost, almost more deterministic fashion, meaning, you know, you have a certain sensor, let's say radar or, you know, LiDAR. And I think that's why, why they've probably been favored early on, because from an automotive safety point of view, LiDAR gives you very useful guarantees about certain behaviors. Um, you know, I I'm not gonna hit something because I have a sort of sort of almost a, you know first principles physics uh, based guarantee of, of a particular sort of distance, and that's incredibly useful. Sure, lidar might degrade degrade a lot with weather, but but you know it's still better than than sort of just trying to define a statistical safety case for for vision systems only. But, you know, I think it's inevitable that anytime you in- incorporate a machine learning component, which at the very least for path planning is a, is a very strict requirement, you will inevitably need to sort of have some degree of statistical components uh, in, the, in that safety case. So safety cases are typically constructed both on a component level as well as on system level. So you basically have to prove to the regulator that your system as a whole is safe. And within you know no, almost no matter what happens, or to, to certain to certain like statistical certainty. Now, to have data for that is a, is a pretty long and extensive process, and as a result, it, it makes sense to kind of stick to, to simpler approaches, which is why we've started building out very incrementally and 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 really started to be sort of st- started with just just a pain point that all, all logistics fleets have, which is fuel, and and really take decisions while under supervision of the human driver, where we effectively can start gathering data on, on statistical safety of our system, and sort of build up from there. And, you know, in general, most of Europe has not even had the regulation drawn up for how, you know, public roads testing without a safety driver would even look like. In the UK, there's some semblance of that. But but uh, so far, everyone, everyone here has tested with a safety driver. So there's sort of an interesting, you know, aspect to to the way that regulation is done, which is obviously really the biggest sort of real barrier to entry. Like ultimately, it's it's how do you prove these systems are safe? It's it's probably what's hold, held back this this whole industry by so much compared to what was
0: expected. Can you explain the regula- regulatory situation in more detail? Like. How specifically are regulators handling the maturity level of self-driving today? Sure. So
1: essentially, what uh, you know, I'll probably if if that, if that's fine, I'll probably stick to the UK, which is the the regulatory environment that I know best, and is interesting because in many ways it is kind of halfway between what uh, US is doing and what what the rest of Europe is doing in many ways because. Obviously, though at state, some of this legislation is done on the state level rather than on a federal level. But but in the UK, there is a you know even an interesting ongoing debate about how should Tesla be sort of allowed to actually run their systems because even though they're obviously don't saying that explicitly, but there's you know increasing levels of automation available in, in especially the Tesla vehicles, and so there is a now an ongoing sort of revision of the of the regulation around sort of automated lane keep assist systems, which is really kind of the first attempts of most OEMs to really get into anything that, that, that resembles machine learning, you know, Tesla, obviously autopilot goes far beyond, beyond the, what uh, automated lane keep assist, which is literally just a system that kind of when it can see visible lane markings, it will keep you in the middle of the two, which is, you know, something that CMU, has done in 1990s i believe on a prototype vehicle uh, which is some sort of very simple contrast based algorithm I, I think it was just some sort of gradient of the contrast at that point it was very simple and so that's kind of where where the most deployed you know system systems fall now obviously there's ambitions to go further so there is a sort of code of practice for Testing of, of automated and highly automated vehicles, you know that in principle allows uh, level four testing within a defined what's known as a operational design domain. Basically, you define the settings under which your system is performed to expected to perform safely, and then you're expected to keep to those boundaries. And and in principle, that allows for uh, sort of testing without without a safety driver. To our, so far, no one's no one's done that yet uh but but in principle that that option exists there are some further requirements on how you need to run those so you need to have appropriate insurance you need to have sort of appropriate data logging sort of requirements i think not too different from what california requires so so it in many ways it's kind of similar to to how california chooses to chooses to define automotive safety
0: can you say more about how your systems differ from the existing models that are out there, the existing known self-driving models?
1: Right. So I think we're we're going uh, pure computer vision, which I think, you know, we're doing for two reasons. One, you know, we think that, uh, like, uh, you will over, over the end, like, in the end, you will absolutely have a system that's as robust with computer vision alone. I think no human needs a LiDAR. There's no reason why... Why a person would need that? Why? Why sort of any sort of driving system would need that either? It, at the end of the day, I think lidar also has many technical challenges. You know, the, it has a fairly limited range compared to cameras, and especially you know in the UK or throughout Europe where rain is very much an expected occurrence, unlike in Arizona where where you can test your your Waymo your Waymo s- system and sort of without really consideration to what happens when it rains you know, here you sort of have to, to put that into consideration. So vision is is a very logical step because it can it can go much further beyond that. It can have a much longer range, which especially for trucking is an important consideration, given that, you know, to stop uh, really takes a while to stop 44 tons. And really, I think the incremental approach is, is something that I think to some people it can almost sound like going backward, but even the regulators are still kind of afraid of these sort of machine learning systems being deployed at scale, especially for, for, for vehicles that are there, you know, sort of have the capacity to, to, to basically run through a wall. So there is, um, sort of like another component of that. And I guess the last thing for us is that we're really trying to, rather than going with the sort of fully supervised, Route where where you effectively kind of define every like sort of component of the driving task, we're really trying to basically use self-supervised learning as much as possible, and for the constituent tasks that we have identified so far that that is very much a, an option so the, the there's frequent jokes about some players you know having almost a a cone labeling person, and I think that that like at the point where where you need to define what a cone is. You know what? What? What a random piece of, of of trash in the street is like to explain to the algorithm whether it matters or not. I think I think that is a that is a already a, a sort of very. You've already ended up with a system that's way too complex to for anyone to really meaningfully manage and deploy. I think in the end, it's going to be very. It's going to going to be no less complicated to deploy such a system than to deploy a system that's sort of self supervised
0: once you can prove statistical safety. You've mentioned self supervised learning I think is is that the term you used mm-hmm can you describe what self supervised learning is
1: right so self supervised learning is really where there's a way to to define the data as as effectively the label for itself right so in our case it's basically meaning meaning you can you can define to sort of the the human behavior as what the human actually ended up doing as the correct label, whereas as opposed to a traditional paradigm where you basically kind of have a human annotator define every component, the, it comes with its own challenges for, for being able to to run a system like that. But unfortunately, I cannot go into those right now.
0: You are somebody who's deeply familiar with generative adversarial networks. Are, are GANs at all useful in self-driving?
1: Yeah, so I think GANs are absolutely useful in a couple of constituent components. One application that I'm still very excited about and I, I think I uh, I just wish I could do a bit more of is uh, is effectively generative domain adaptation. So, um I think absolutely every single company uh, that that we know of doing self-driving has At some point trained in simulation. I think one one major issue with simulation is the lack of perceptual realism. You know, obviously we have now sort of uh, attempts at photorealism through sort of render sequences that still take way too long to be practically usable. And really what you want uh, when you're training in simulation is to do exactly what you cannot do in the real world, which is to run that simulation million times a second with the with the version of an agent, and then basically sort of do gradient averaging against all against all those possibilities. So the way that we we solve this perception realism issue is we use something known as generative domain adaptation, which really sort of borrows from from uh, approaches like CycleGAN, where we effectively take the sort of simulated domain and the real domain, and we basically ask the generative model to translate the simulated into the real. One of the magic things about this approach is that this works even without sort of any sort of paired domains. So you, you just take a bunch of sort of uh, uh, simulated images and a bunch of real images, and the system ba- effectively learns what the correct sort of transformation is. So if anyone's familiar with the technique called style transfer, um, you can almost think of it as a learned style transfer, where you basically, you know, define the sort of synthetic style and realism style, and, uh, and and CycleGAN almost learns how to transform one into the other. So that's kind of the high level, more than happy to go into to more of the technical detail of how that works, but hopefully that makes sense.
0: I would like to hear you go a little bit deeper into
1: the implementation. Sure. So essentially, I think let's just do a super quick refresher of what a GAN is. So GAN is effectively is a generative adversarial network. So if you break it down, you basically have two networks, one called the generator, one called the discriminator. And basically, they're adversarial because they compete against each other. So uh, in the original paper, the, the loss function of the generators is literally just the, the inverse of the of the discriminator's loss function later on that got revised. But uh, effectively it is two networks where, where they, one of them sort of wins and the, the other one has to, to, to lose. So you can almost think about it as like a very adversarial relationship between a student painter and a, and a, and a teacher painter, where the teacher is trying to identify what, what uh, the paintings are good and the student painter is trying to produce paintings, which is basically what the generator does. And the discriminator is basically trying to tell what is real and what is fake. So that's the the sort of super super quick rundown of what a GAN is. Now, there is a more advanced architecture that came around in about 2016, 2017, called CycleGAN, which was very, it instantly became very popular because of the the magic of what you could do with it, where effectively you now have a much more complicated architecture of, of four neural networks um that are effectively act as the as, as a sort of generators between two different domains and discriminators for those respective domains so what that means is you effectively train one generator to not create an image from scratch but just do a basically a, a rendition of that painting in, in in another style so you can think about it as like you know here's a Here's a Van Gogh picture and now make it a Da Vinci picture or, or something like that. So so And sort of the the same way, the other way around. So so you basically have a, one painter that does from A to B and then another painter does from B to A. And at every point, there's a critic that effectively evaluates the realism of that picture. And because you can translate it twice, right? So go A to B and then B to A, you effectively def- define what's known as a cyclical loss. So you can almost think of it as translating a sentence from English to French, and then from French to English, and then measuring the difference. And so that way, you effectively get a sort of loss function where um, you can, e- even without having sort of relevant labels in the other domain, you can sort of define a meaningful mappings in both directions from A to B and B to A. So that, that constitutes cycle again. Uh, and effectively, now the task just becomes... How do I translate synthetic labels or synthetic images to real images and then back again?
0: So now that we have a little bit of an understanding of some of the infrastructure and the algorithms that you're working with, tell me about the the state of the art for building autonomous autonomous driving technology. Like what kinds of cloud services are you using? what kinds of machine learning frameworks you're using. Just tell me about the general stack.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I I think in tech, you're kind of always told as as an engineer to to use boring technology for anything that you're not innovating on. So, um, you know, being a fairly small and agile company, that's exactly what we're doing. So, you know, AWS is is probably the the easiest way to get, get started. And obviously, one of the Sort of intelligent things as once once you know how the AWS ecosystem works, you you tend to use it. So I think that their their marketing strategy or definitely worked there. So that's what we use. And then on the like framework side, uh, like I think there's this kind of ongoing debate of sorts of between TensorFlow versus PyTorch. You know, we definitely lean heavily towards PyTorch. I think I've I've personally just. I think I made the switch about three years ago, and I just personally found it much easier to work with on, on almost every level. So that's kind of on the high level stack. And then obviously, you know, once once you start putting this into embedded systems, you have to do a bit of transformations through like standard things like Onyx which is a framework for, for basically defining, I think, interoperable or interportable kind of networks that can be basically put on, on a much less powerful uh, compute than you'd find on a on a massive box in the cloud, because that's obviously convenient for training. And and, and training time, you can have as much compute as you want. But at inference time, you really want to make sure that it's fairly limited in terms of the the number of operations that it needs to run. So that's that's also a design consideration when you're running the neural networks. And I think a, a slight tangent, I think one of the reasons why Tesla has a, is an interesting approach with the sort of self, the, the designing their own self-driving chip. And I think in principle, you know, um, I think for a lot of other players, NVIDIA has such a strong grasp on the market because really... Uh, once you cross certain threshold, your options are either making your own, or or using Nvidia. And obviously, most people just choose to go the simple thing and, and use Nvidia. Tesla Tesla d- designed their own, and I think that that is still a, an interestingly sort of underserved market in terms of like just the the sheer chip dominance that's with with just a handful of of global players.
0: Could you go into the the dynamics between TensorFlow and PyTorch a little bit more? You said you prefer you prefer PyTorch at this point, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think when when TensorFlow came out was it 2015, 2016 maybe something like that. I think you know I sort of started started trying to work with it, and and it and it became um, it became very apparent that this was kind of a system that was really designed for uh, internal use of Google. I mean, you know, obviously Google ships TensorFlow but doesn't ship all, all of the support framework. I mean, they've open sourced more of it over the years, but initially it was very like sort of standalone sort of kind of try your own luck. And I think uh, I think when you look into the, the sort of design considerations that TensorFlow has built out, I think it's been really a system that has been sort of optimized for production from day one but I don't know if in hindsight that was the right call because the sort of choices the design choices that TensorFlow has made always made it sort of run relatively well at Google scale but not so well for for anyone else and especially not for people just you know getting familiar with the framework I remember the error messages that you got in the beginning were completely unintelligible but I mean, obviously, to to Google's credit, they absolutely got got uh, miles miles better. But I just think that 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 attitude of sort of optimizing for the sort of almost internal Google production use case has never really gone away. Whereas PyTorch, I think, has been sort of making I think intelligent decisions around like you know we still kind of want almost almost I I don't think this is unfair to say I I think it almost under prioritized production use in the early days, but it made it very user-friendly. You know, one of the things that I think improves everyone's productivity, and then it's sort of uh, almost the the taboo of some some machine learning, but it's like just being able to use debuggers well. It's such a simple thing in most of software engineering, but in machine learning, really, there's so many people that either don't even know that debuggers exist or, or are very sort of hesitant to use them. I think it's such a such a speed up to anyone's productivity, and you almost cannot use it with any debugger with TensorFlow because it it sort of, especially historically, it had the sort of awkward, awkward um, sort of, like sort of graph definition step and then execution step, and then if you wanted to see the interaction, you just had to keep rerunning the program to understand what the problem was, whereas with PyTorch you can all you know sort. Of, put put in a breakpoint anywhere and just jumped straight to that point which is always such a massive improvement i think that that really sort of won me over and then i think over time pytorch again did sort of they, they started converging closer together cuz pytorch started building more towards production they they introduced things like torchscript that allow you to basically precompile parts of the graph and make it more performant and make it sort of easier to use on, on other other chips and so on. So there's definitely been an interesting degree of convergence between the two. But I think PyTorch is kind of like, it's easier to pick up to this day and easier to debug. And I think, you know, really, if we're, if we all like put ourselves to sort of human level, like that always speeds up your rate of iteration. And that's really what matters.
0: Do you have a testing loop? for how you test and gather the data on self-driving trucks?
1: Yeah, so we're we're in the process of sort of building a, a, a more sophisticated version of that. But of course, you know, having a, a testing loop is, is incredibly uh, important. I think there's a number of things you can do. Um, you know, obviously, simulation um, is a useful, is a very useful component of it because not only gives you ability to, to, to obviously train new algorithms and explore a little bit more more sort of ambitious variations than you might do in the real world. but also you know it allows you to check that that your performance still holds a go, a, a, across certain scenarios. One of, the, one of the things people frequently talk about is edge cases and, and you can sort of test that your algorithm runs account, against you know well-defined edge cases. There's even a whole set of industry standards. On defining, you know, the the position of certain objects, the vehicle, the road conditions, and so on, which then constitute a safety case. Sort of, it's not quite a safety case, it's not quite true, but it's, it's essentially a definition of 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 sort of edge case that that your algorithm needs to to clear. It comes from sort of safety engineering world where we basically use these kind of like scenarios where where your algorithm broke down or where your procedure broke down. And then you basically try to make sure that, that never happens again. So, so basically in, in many ways that, that becomes a very important part of your CICD. So there's obviously elements you can do like that. I mean, at the same time, there's obviously, you know, sort of the, the difference between like software in the loop and hardware in the loop sort of behavior. So you need to, to make sure that you're really kind of testing against both. And obviously, nothing's gonna be as scalable as pure software. So, so you need to be a little bit more intelligent about when you're doing sort of new new releases. Like, how do you test against the sort of defined pre-existing sort of real-world scenarios? And do you go out and do you test new scenarios with your new model or not? Depending on or and how do you make that decision? So, I think there's a there's a lot of important pieces that kind of really break down just the traditional software barrier, where where you really need to think about the sort of real world behavior, which for a lot of software, you don't really have to think about too much, just it's just an extra layer of complication.
0: What are some of the problems that you've encountered in productionizing real world machine learning?
1: Yeah, good question. I mean, I think every, every time every time I've uh, I've deployed a m- machine learning system into production, there's uh, always been at least even though you think you, you thought about everything there's always something that that you've missed, which is why 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 people do testing. I'm I'm trying to think if there's like any sort of general kind of rules. I mean, there's, you know, there's all sorts of especially, you know, when you when you're defining Sort of the the model parameters across to sort of correspond to to a particular vehicle. There's always a sort of interesting drifts that happen that depending on sort of the 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 weight and the the weight distribution of the vehicle that can cause quite a quite a complication. I mean, I think in general, like I, th- I think at the end of the day, it's it's always really important to have a really rigorous. Testing process, sort of starting out with sort of unit testing of the the most basic behavior in your software that ensures the safety code is running as it should, all the way up to to basically more the more complicated scenarios. I mean, in simple machine learning models, before before in my sort of past life, I think the the challenges there, in principle, were always pretty similar, except of course now that the magnitude and the the level of impact is is much higher but uh you know there's all the standard problems of like model drift monitoring models in production it can be quite difficult for some things to to ensure that in no edge case has your model performance degraded to some bizarre equilibrium i think that that just takes a lot of a lot of kind of thoughtful work
0: so your company is creation labs is it a company? Is it a experimentation center? What exactly are you doing at Creation Labs?
1: So, so yeah, so so it is absolutely a company, uh, but I think that you know we're we're really trying to basically kind of come up with a with a new approach to to autonomy that you know in some ways ironically is a little bit more conservative, but we also think we can provide more value faster. I think one of the really interesting components is that you can deliver value to, you know, to fleets whether that's sort of fuel and carbon reduction or sort of safety um analysis of of the of the sort of uh machine augmented human drivers. And and I think that's one of the things that I think ultimately especially in Europe will probably take the cake because I think in general regulators like to see kind of very careful and disciplined deployment. And that's really what we're doing. So we're basically working with logistics companies to provide them basically initially with 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 sort of very very low levels of automation and sort of increasing that over time. So we're already working on um effectively improving on sort of longitudinal control of vehicles. So effectively you know how fast you're going. How do you do that more fuel efficiently? How do you th- do that more safely? And that's already something that, you know, if you can fit to, to to vehicles that even the vehicles today rolling off production line frequently have absolutely no intelligence embedded in them as a default. I mean, a lot of the OEMs now started provide uh, additional add-ons, but but those are obviously only available at at sort of at purchase decision. So so. Most of the trucks driving on the road today and for the foreseeable future are fairly dumb trucks. And, and being able to basically go in and, and, and retrofit some layer of intelligence can already provide a lot of value. And we think that incrementally we can take over more and more of the value chain and ultimately sort of start delivering sort of a level four systems that, that can just based on the statistical safety that we've proven up with the lower levels of automation are roadworthy.
0: Can you tell me a little bit more about the integration of hardware and software? How do you get the trucks like driving using the the software that you've written and what's the integration stack look like?
1: Yeah, so, so right now we operate with a select number of vehicles for like the sort of full, sort of quote unquote, full level two system. So there we sort of have a, define control model that we basically largely leverage the the existing hardware and we basically leverage the EPS and and sort of the internal CAN messaging to to basically control lateral and longitudinal control when there there is a sort of lo- lower level of automation product which is basically just kind of a vision a computer vision based sort of better cruise control which only then has sort of one integration point and has a sort of lower safety case requirement, but at the same time, effectively manages to sort of just integrate fairly simply into the control systems. So trucks especially have a sort of extra layer of standardization, unlike regular vehicles, which is a protocol known as J1939, which effectively sits on top of the CAN protocol and that effectively provides a layer of standardization. It is still somewhat flexible. There are still OEM specific fields, but largely but but there's a, a great amount of, of sort of standard behavior. So we we use that as a as a sort of the lower level of automation. And then you know we have a higher level of automated systems for a select number of vehicles.
0: Do you have a perspective on whether there will be a strong lead by the companies that that build their own hardware and have the the stack fully integrated like like a Tesla versus some sort of partnership or amalgamation of of different companies like uh, like some sort of supply chain partnership?
1: Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I do think in the personal car space, I think, you know, in terms of like mass deployment, and that's part of the reason why we think incrementality makes so much sense. And it's kind of in, in a sense, is also what Tesla did is, um, you know, just the variety of edge cases that you can sort of the long tail um, you can capture in the real world. But ironically, I think like Tesla is like the, the lead for like the mass adoption of of sort of L, L4 and maybe eventually L5 self-driving, largely not because necessarily that they have uh, been building the cars from scratch, but because they can sort of collect all that data. And, and sort of source new interesting cases on, on a basically weekly hourly basis, which is something that is so invaluable when building out systems that have to deal with all sorts of weird scenarios. You know, I think there's it, it it's uh you know, in pr- principle, like the Waymo approach or to many other players, I think Jaguar RP seems to be a very popular vehicle to integrate with, you know, there there's, it's a, it's a good car, you know, and obviously the approaches that people have chosen so far have been very restricted. But I think there's a real question. And I think, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, people from Waymo and et cetera will disagree, but but I think there's a real question about how well this can scale. I think as a first and foremost, as a machine learning engineer, I'm, I'm worried about the sort of ability of that system to solve cases where, you know, everything looks so different. And, you know, uh, the sort of You know, even for sensors that are sort of less, less sensitive to the visual side, like, like LiDAR, I think that there's still, you still need the sort of out of distribution behavior is still needs to be validated. And, you know, every time you deploy to a new area, and that could be as little as like the next state, right? Like you're running into real questions about will the system work as well as it did in the previous state. And I think it gets much worse, you know, cross continents or cross countries, even between just like Germany and France. It's like very hard to imagine how, how those the systems will, will will scale just with the the approach that that Waymo has taken.
0: Well, just to wrap up, do you have any other thoughts on the future of self driving and where we're going? Yeah, I
1: mean, I I do think that you know it is still an exciting. Uh, area like innovation is going. And I think that the one, one, one funny thing that I think that sort of applies very, very accurately, I think there's the, this concept of like the Gartner hype cycle. And I, I do think that we're definitely past the peak hype. Um, and I think we're slowly getting into sort of uh, through the, I think it's like the thruff of disillusionment or whatever it's called. And then there's the, the, the plateau of productivity. So I think we're slowly getting there. And And I do think that you know it is still one of the most impactful transformational sort of applications of computer vision and machine learning i uh, like I think uh, a lot of machine learning and AI has so far been really uh sort of more more as a as a sort of filtering step of some kind um and I think these are like the first big real production systems that are starting to to basically leverage machine learning. Um, that that make a difference in peop- like everyone's lives, so I I do think there's a sort of still still like much excitement ahead as we as as we sort of build out these systems and kind of bring them to 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 every country around the world. You know I th- I think there's an interesting kind of still set of hurdles yet to to overcome. I think we're we're probably still a good number of years away from sort of full level four self driving for for an, any type of vehicle. I think maybe there's a non-zero chance that that the full self driving beta um, that's currently out there will not hit another plateau. I I suppose that it is possible. My expectation is that more likely than not it will. At which point sort of some areas of of US might start start seeing level four self driving in personal cars within the one or two years. I still think it's highly likely that it will hit another plateau, and for everyone else, I do think that, that it will it'll take a, a lot while longer. And then I think in Europe, it almost doesn't matter who you are. You will need to prove out statistical safety over a long period of time, you know, because ultimately the problem with edge cases that accidents happens very rarely, thankfully, but you still need to show that on a large enough sample that that you're performing better than better than than humans or com- at least comparable and so there's still still a long journey there to demonstrate that in every country on their data on their turf which i think you know will will mostly be the requirement so uh, but i do think it's an exciting world ahead and i think uh, i think there's still 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 so much to be done
0: okay well jacob thanks for coming on the show it's been great talking all right thank you
1: for having me